Part Two of Temple Trouble by H. Beam Piper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Two. It started really about five years ago when Kerchuk, the King of Zurb, married the Chuldun Princess Doroth from the country over beyond the Black Sea and made her his queen over the heads of about a dozen daughters of the local nobility whom he'd married previously. Then he brought in this children's scribe, Labderg, and made him overseer of the kingdom, roughly prime minister. There was a lot of dissatisfaction over that, and for a while it looked as though he was going to have a revolution on his hands. But he brought in about five thousand Chuldun mercenaries, all archers. These Hulgans can't shoot a bow worth beans. So the dissatisfaction died down, and so did most of the leaders of the disaffected group. The story I get is that this Labdurge arranged the marriage in the first place. It looks to me as though the Chuldun Emperor is intending to take over the Hulgan kingdoms, starting with Zurb. Well, these Chulduns all worship a god called Muz-Azin. Muz-Azin is a crocodile with wings like a bat and a lot of knife blades in his tail. He makes this yacht Zara look downright beautiful. So do his habits. Muz-Azin fancies human sacrifices. The victims are strung up by the ankles on a triangular frame and lashed to death with iron-barbed whips. Nasty sort of a deity, but this is a nasty timeline. The people here get a big kick out of watching these sacrifices. Much better show than our bunny-killing. The victims are usually criminals, or over-age, or incorrigible slaves, or prisoners of war. Of course, when the Chulduns began infiltrating the palace, they brought in their crocodile god too, and a flock of priests, and King Kerchuk let them set up a temple in the palace. Naturally we preached against this heathen idolatry in our temples, but religious bigotry isn't one of the numerous imperfections of this sector. Everybody's deity is as good as anybody else's. Indifferentism, I believe, is the theological term. Anyhow, on that basis things went along fairly well till two years ago when we had this run of bad luck. Bad luck! Brunod Clough snorted. That's the standing excuse of every incompetent. Go on, Stranor. What sort of bad luck? Verkan Vall asked. Well, first we had a drought, beginning in early summer, that burned up most of the grain crop. Then, when that broke, we got heavy rains and hailstorms and floods, and that destroyed what got through the dry spell. When they harvested what little was left, it was obvious there'd be a famine, so we brought in a lot of grain by conveyor and distributed it from the temples, a miraculous gift of Yatzar, of course. Then the main office on first level got scared about flooding this timeline with lots of unaccountable grain, and were afraid we'd make the people suspicious, and ordered it stopped. Then Kerchuk, and I might add, that the kingdom of Zurb was the hardest hit by the famine, ordered his army mobilized and started an invasion of the Jumdun country, south of the Carpathians, to get grain. He got his army chopped up, and only about a quarter of them got back with no grain. You ask me? I'd say that Labdurge framed it to happen that way. He advised Kerchuk to invade in the first place, and I mentioned my suspicion that Chombrog, the Chuldun Emperor, is planning to move in on the whole gun kingdoms. Well, what would be smarter than to get Kerchuk's army smashed in advance? 
How did the defeat occur? Verkan Vall asked. Any suspicion of treachery? Nothing you could put your finger on, except that the Jumduns seem to have a pretty good intelligence about Kerchunk's invasion route and battle plans. It could have been nothing worse than stupid tactics on Kerchuk's part. See, these Hulgans, and particularly the Zurb Hulgans, are spearmen. They fight in a fairly thin line, with heavy-armed infantry in front and light infantry with throwing spears behind. The nobles fight in light chariots, usually at the center of the line, and that's where they were at this Battle of Jarm. Kerchuk himself was at the center, with his Cholden archers massed around him. The Jumduns use a lot of cavalry with long swords and lances, and a lot of big chariots with two javelin men and a driver. Well, instead of ramming into Kerchuk's center, where he had his archers, they hit the extreme left and folded it up, and then swung around behind and hit the right from the rear. All the children archers did was stand fast around the king and shoot anybody who came close to them. They were left pretty much alone. But the Holgan spearmen were cut to pieces. The battle ended with Kerchuk and his nobles and his archers making a fighting retreat, while the Jumdun cavalry were chasing the spearmen every which way, and cutting them down and lancing them as they ran. Well, whether it was Labdurge's treachery or Kerchuk's stupidity, in either case it was natural for the archers to come off easiest, and the Holgan spearmen to pay the butcher's bill. But try and tell these knuckleheads anything like that. Muzazin protected the Childans, and Yat-Zar let the Hulgans down, and that was all there was to it. The Zurb temple started losing worshippers, particularly the families of the men who didn't make it back from Jorm. If that had been all there'd been to it, though it still wouldn't have hurt the mining operations and we could have got by, but what really tore it was when the rabbits started to die. Stranor Sleth picked up a cigar from his desk and bit the end, spitting it out disgustedly. Toralemia, of course, he said, touching his lighter to the tip. When that hit, they started going over to Muzazin in droves, not only in Zurb, but all over the Six Kingdoms. You ought to have seen the house we had for sunset sacrifice this evening. About two hundred, and we used to get two thousand. It used to be all two men could do to lift the offering box at the door afterward, and all the money we took in tonight I could put in one pocket. The high priest used language that would have been considered unclerical even among the Hulkans. Verkan Vall nodded. Even without the quickie hypno-mech he had taken for this sector, he knew that the rabbit was domesticated among the proto-Aryan Hulgans, and was their chief meat animal. Hulgun rabbits were even a minor import on the first level, and could be had at all the better restaurants in cities like the Hergabar. He mentioned that. That's not the worst of it, Stranor Sleth told him. See, the rabbit's sacred to Yat-Zar, not taboo, just sacred. They have to use a specially consecrated knife to kill them. Consecrating rabbit knives has always been an item of temple revenue, and they must say a special prayer before eating them. We could have got around the rest of it, even the Battle of Jorm, punishment by Yatsar for the sin of apostasy. But Yatsar just wouldn't make rabbits sick. Yatsar thinks too well of rabbits to do that, and it's not been any use claiming he would, so there you are. 
Well, I take the attitude that this situation is the result of your incompetence, Brannad Klav began in a bully-ragging tone. You're not only the high priest of this temple, you're the acknowledged head of the religion in all the Holgan kingdoms. You should have had more hold on the people than to allow anything like this to happen. Hold on the people? Stranor Sleth fairly howled, appealing to Verkenval. What does he think a religion is on this sector, anyhow? You think these savages dreamed up that six-armed monstrosity up there to express their yearning for higher things, or to symbolize their moral ethos, or as a philosophical escape-hatch from the dilemma of causation? They never even heard of such matters. On this sector, gods are strictly utilitarian. As long as they can take care of their worshippers, they get their sacrifices. When they can't put out, they have to get out. How do you suppose these childrens living in the Caucasus Mountains got the idea of a god like a crocodile anyhow? Why, they got it from the Homron traders, people from down in the Nile Valley. They had a god once, something basically like a billy goat, but he let them get licked in a couple of battles, so out he went. Why, all the deities on this sector have hyphenated names, because they're combinations of several deities, worshipped in one person. Do you know anything about the history of this sector? he asked the paratime police officer. Well, it develops that an alternate probability of what we call the Nilo-Mesopotamian basic sector group, Verkenval said, on most Nilo-Mesopotamian sectors, like the Macedonian Empire sector, or the Alexandrian Roman, or Alexandrian Punic, or Indo-Turasian, or European-American, there was an Aryan invasion of Eastern Europe and Asia Minor about four thousand elapsed years ago. On this sector, the ancestors of the Aryans came in about fifteen centuries earlier as Neolithic savages, about the time that the Sumerian and Egyptian civilizations were first developing, and overran all southeast Europe, Asia Minor, and the Nile Valley. They developed the Bronze Age culture of the civilizations they overthrew, and then, more slowly, to an Iron Age culture. About two thousand years ago they were using hardened steel and building large stone cities, just as they do now. At that time they reached cultural stasis. But as for their religious beliefs, you've described them quite accurately. A god is only worshipped as long as the people think him powerful enough to aid and protect them. When they lose their confidence, he is discarded and the god of some neighboring people is adopted instead. He turned to Brannad Klav. Didn't Stranor report this situation to you when it first developed? he asked. I know he did. He speaks of receiving shipments of grain by conveyor for temple distribution. Then why didn't you report it to Paratime Police? That's what we have a Paratime Police Force for. Well, yes, of course, but I had enough confidence in Stranor Sleth to think that he could handle the situation himself. I didn't know he'd gone slack. Look, I can't make weather even if my parishioners think I can, Stranor Slath defended himself, and I can't make a great military genius out of a blockhead like Kachuk, and I can't immunize all the rabbits on this timeline against Tularemia, even if I'd had any reason to expect a Tularemia epidemic, which I hadn't, because the disease is unknown on this sector. 
This is the only outbreak of it anybody's ever heard of on any proto-Aryan timeline. No, but I'll tell you what you could have done, Verkan Vall told him. When this Kerchuk started to apostatize, you could have gone to him at the head of a procession of priests, all paratimers and all armed with energy weapons, and pointed out his spiritual duty to him, and if he gave you any backtalk, you could have pulled out that needler and rayed him down, and then cried, Behold the vengeance of Yat-Zar upon the wicked king. I'll bet any sum at any odds that his successor would have thought twice about going over to Muz Azin, and none of these other kings would have even thought once about it. Ha! That's what I wanted to do, Stranor Sleth exclaimed. And who stopped me? I'll give you just one guess. Well, it seems there was slackness here, but it wasn't Stranor Sleth who was slack, Firkinval commented. Well, I must say, I never thought I'd hear an officer of the Paratime Police criticizing me for trying to operate inside the Paratime Transportation Code, Bernard Klob exclaimed. Verkan Vall, sitting on the edge of Stranor Sleth's desk, aimed his cigarette at Bernard Klob like a blaster. Now look, he began, there is one and only one inflexible law regarding out-time activities. The secret of paratime transposition must be kept inviolate, and any activity tending to endanger it is prohibited. That's why we don't allow the transposition of any object of extraterrestrial origin to any timeline on which space travel has not been developed. Such an object may be preserved, and then, after the local population begin exploring the planet from whence it came, there will be dangerous speculations and theories as to how it arrived on Terra at such an early date. I came within inches, literally, of getting myself killed not long ago, cleaning up the result of a violation of that regulation. For the same reason, we don't allow the export to outtime natives of manufactured goods too far in advance of their local culture. That's why, for instance, you people have to hand-finish all those big Yat-Zar idols to remove traces of machine work. One of those things may be around a few thousand years from now, and when these people develop a mechanical civilization. But as far as raying down this Kerchuk is concerned, these Hulgans are completely non-scientific. They wouldn't have the least idea what happened. They'd believe that Yat-Zar struck him dead, as gods on this plane of culture are supposed to do. And if any of them noticed the needler at all, they'd think it was just a holy amulet of some kind. But the law is the law, Bernard Clove began. End of Part Two